We will be in chapter 22. We're looking at verses 1 through 5. You can find that in the blue ESV Bible and the seat in front of you, page uh, 1041. 1041. I've entitled the sermon this morning, They Shall See His Face. Our key words for our worshipers in training are kingdom, life, and light. And now I ask you to follow along as I read these verses aloud. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In John Bunyan's famous allegory of the Christian life, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, we read of a man named Christian. He comes under the conviction of his sins, and at the word of the evangelist, he leaves his home in the city of destruction and flees to the celestial city on the hill. So beginning the Christian journey. The man, Christian, faces many trials on his way to the city. He suffers the loss of many things dear to him. The last trial he faces is a river at the end of the way leading up to the celestial city. He and his traveling companion, Hopeful, are told by two men whose clothing shone like gold and their faces shone as the light They were told by these men that they must cross the river in order to reach the glorious city. The problem is that the river had no bridge. So they must swim across. And after much toil and struggle, they do make it across the river. And having shed their earthly garments, they begin to make their way up the hill toward the city. And as they walked with these two men, these shining ones whom they had met, they talked about the glory of the place which according to these shining ones, the beauty and glory of it were inexpressible. They were told further that you are going now to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall every day be with the King, even all the days of eternity. Furthermore, they they, they heard that you shall not see such things as you saw where, when you were in the lower region upon the earth, just as sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passed away. They spoke further of what life shall be like in this great and glorious city of which the shining one said, in that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see Him as He is. 
And it is here that we will leave our friends, Christian and Hopeful, in order to consider our text this morning. But I do want to return to them at the end of the message to hear of their reception into the city. Several years ago, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm um, teaching uh, uh, full-time currently. And several years ago, a student of mine asked me to summarize the book of Revelation. There are a number of ways I could have responded, many of which would have been probably very long-winded, in-depth. And however, to this student's relief, I chose simplicity over complexity. I chose brevity over garrulity, perhaps for the only time in my life. Um, And I answered with two words. God wins. That's all I said. God wins. Period. He wins, and his people win with him. He has conquered death, hell, and the grave, and has ransomed for himself a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And the message of this book has been, was given to struggling churches caught in the midst of backsliding, persecution, compromise, apathy, cultural capitulation, to name but a few of their issues. The message is also for us, the church today. Christ is victorious, and so we, his people, can press on and endure, by his grace, the trials and temptations and tribulations that may come before us, because our Savior has overcome The book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, we read in verse 1. Given to the apostle, verse 1 of chapter 1. It is given to the apostle John while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And our passage, as you have surmised, falls at the very end of the book. And really, Revelation 22 should be taken together with Revelation 21. They sort of form a unit And in essence, these two chapters tell us of the perfected church of God, finally dwelling in perfect harmony and communion with her victorious Savior. This is in contrast to how the book begins with the imperfect churches addressed in chapters 2 and 3. Here we get a glimpse of the perfect, eternal state. John sees the consummation of the new creation which Christ began at His first coming and will consummate at His final coming. In in chapter 21, John depicts, he, he, he depicts this vision for us. We see the new creation as a bride in verse 9 of chapter 21, a heavenly city in verses 10 through 14, and as the inner sanctuary of God's temple in verses 15 through 27. And my aim this morning in preaching this passage in Revelation 22 is simple. I want to rivet our attention on Christ so that he might fill our hearts with longing for the world to come as we celebrate the love he has shown us in redeeming us for himself. That's it. So if anyone was super nervous about a sermon from Revelation I, only, I have a short time, so I left my charts and graphs at home. 
And we're not working out a robust, full understanding of eschatology this morning. That really, could that be done in one sermon anyway? My hope is that wherever you land on the, the scale of eschatological perspective, when you think about what is to come, I hope we can all walk away from this sermon with a greater enjoyment of God now and a greater longing for the perfected enjoyment that we will have that is to come. So with that introduction in mind, I want to look at uh, four aspects that we see in these verses of the new creation in its consummated form. And so first, uh, there is uh, going to be a return to the garden The bride-like temple city of chapter 21 in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22 is revealed as a garden. Not just any garden, but the garden of Eden, restored and surpassed. Look again with me in the text. The angel shows John the water of life flowing from the throne of God through the middle of the city, and on either side of the river there was the tree of life. And this language hearkens us back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which reads, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And so we see here in Revelation 22 a restored Eden. What Adam the first lost in his sin, Adam the second has restored in his obedience. Yet this garden in Revelation 22 is not merely Eden restored, but it is Eden surpassed. A clear example of that um, comes in reference to from the tree, uh, in reference to the tree of life. We read of this river flowing from the throne of God, and on both sides of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit being yielded each month. In order to see the escalation clearly from Genesis 2 to Revelation, it's helpful to know that this is also a reference to Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel chapter 40, through the end of the book, 48, Ezekiel is giving a description of his vision of the, the, the temple restored and renewed. And in chapter 47, Ezekiel comes to the door of the temple. From it, he sees a river flowing eastward. And as he looks at the river, he, see, uh, he says this. In verse 12 of Ezekiel 47, he says, On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit each month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. What we have then from Genesis to Ezekiel to Revelation is an escalation from one degree of goodness and glory to another. The problem in your mind, though, might be in Revelation, it says that there is the one tree of life. How do we make sense of this? Well, the text says that the tree of life 
here is on both sides of the river. And so it doesn't really make any sense to imagine how one tree could be doing that. And given the connection with Ezekiel 47, I would argue that the reference here to the tree of life in verse um, 2 here is a collective noun. It's a singular reference to the one tree of life representative of many trees, as we saw in Ezekiel 47, with different kinds of fruit, all for the healing of the nations. How do we understand the reference, though, to the twelve kinds of fruit? It's an oddly specific number. Well, the number twelve is used often in Scripture. It's laden with symbolism. And it conveys a sense of fullness. Particularly, it is the number, the symbol for the full company of the people of God. Think the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles. The language in Revelation 22 then is meant to express a sense of escalation from the glory and goodness of the earthly Eden to that which will be found, that which will be found in the heavenly Eden. It is a picture of total fullness. Why twelve kinds of fruit? Because it shows the sufficiency of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It is total. It is complete. It is lacking in nothing. His provision for us is full to the brim. And the leaves of this tree, the text says, are specifically for the healing of the nations. In the new creation, the people of God, from all over the world, throughout all time, will find their rest, their peace, their healing in Him. Not just a people from one specific geographic region. Christ suffered death in the present age so that those who are united to Him by faith might not have to, won't have to in the age to come. Christ was put to death on a tree so that we might be given life by a tree. Revelation 5.9 tells us that Christ released us from the penalty of our sins by His blood and ransomed a people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. It isn't just national Israel with whom He is concerned, but the entire world. In the consummation of the new creation, all the pain and sufferings that the people of God experience in this life will be done away with. Our tears will be wiped away. Our diseases will be healed. And we will experience the full salvation of both our souls and our bodies. Well, the new creation is a return to the garden, but it is also, secondly, a removal of the curse. Our passage tells us that the consummated new creation, there will be nothing accursed. This bride-like garden temple city shall be free of the curse. In Genesis 3, we read about the fall of mankind into sin and the loss of the first paradise. After Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God curses the serpent and He proceeds to curse 
their prospective roles in their future society. God threatens death for the man and his wife. He kicks them out of Eden and he curses the ground and Adam's labor. He multiplies pain and childbearing for the woman. He promises uh, broken relationships as a result of our sin. The curse results in mankind's labor on earth becoming one of increased difficulty, which on its own will end and amount to nothing more but a return to the dust from which we have come. However, in the new creation, as one commentator put it, the curse of physical and spiritual death set on the human race by Adam in the first garden is permanently removed by the Lamb in the last garden. The ancient curse, therefore, is un done, we may proclaim with the hymn writer, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. There shall be no cursed thing in the new creation because God and the Lamb will be in it. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. No cursed thing may dwell in the new and restored and escalated Eden because God will have made His eternal home there. The curse shall be no more because God, through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, has made His dwelling with man in the heavenly city forever. Well, thirdly, not only is the new creation a return to the garden, a removal of the curse, but we will also have a right to see God. Verses 3 and 4, we see this. We read that God's servants shall be with Him, worshiping Him, And this calls us back to many texts of Scripture, but one in particular in this very book, in Revelation 7, verse 14, we read that those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb shall be before the throne of God serving day and night as priest in His temple. This is the message and hope of salvation. We aren't simply waiting for the undoing of sin, but access to God unhindered by sin. A world without sin and without God is no world I care to be in. We want, we need, we are waiting for complete access to God. And boy, do we get it. Not only, we read in verse 3, are we in God's presence Worshipping Him, serving Him. But verse 4 tells us we get to see Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. We shall not spend eternity like the seraphim covering their faces in the presence of God. we shall be permitted to look Him full in the face. What does that mean? How 
will we see his face? Does God have a face? Doesn't the Bible teach that no man shall see God and live? Does that only apply to the here and now? Will we really get to see God in the new creation? These are important questions. And I want to draw our attention to a few places in the Bible that will help us to understand the statement and give clarity to the meaning. So on the one hand, we have statements like this in Scripture. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 17. We read, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. In 1 John 4.12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Or uh, perhaps most well known in Exodus 33.20, the Lord himself says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. On the other hand, Matthew 5.8, The pure in heart shall see God. Jacob in Genesis 32 tells us that he saw God face to face and yet his life was spared. Or what about in Psalm 27 verse 4? The the longing there is to dwell in the courts of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty forever. The Bible teaches us plainly that it is impossible for man to see God. The Bible also emphatically makes clear that there is a day coming when we will, in fact, see God. How do we reconcile these seemingly paradoxical realities? Well, here's a stab at it, resolving some of this tension. I admit I found great help um, from John Piper in one of the episodes of his Ask Pastor John podcast. He he deals with this very question, and, and Piper says that it really comes down to the, the different ways in which the Bible uses the word see. So there are two ways I want to say that we can't see God, and there are two ways that we can. We'll do these briefly. First, we cannot ever see God in his essence with our physical eyes because he doesn't have a body. He is invisible, so he cannot be seen. Jesus affirms this in uh, John 4, 24, he says that God is spirit. And then in Luke 24, 39, he affirms that no spirit has flesh and bones. So God is without a, without a body, and so he is invisible. He can't be seen. Another way we cannot see God is even spiritually, with unmediated directness. Jesus in John 6, 45 and 46 says that no one has seen God except he who is from the Father. Yet the seeing here that he speaks of cannot be a physical seeing with physical eyes since the Son of God did not have physical eyes before the incarnation. But he came as one from the Father who had seen God. And so the seeing that he did prior to his incarnation was of a spiritual nature, not a physical one. But he says that no one else can do this. The point then is that only the Son can see God, even spiritually, with unmediated directness. What are the two ways in which the Bible speaks that we can see God? First, when we come to discern 
the beauty and the glory of the Lord, we have come to see Him. Before our conversion, we were blind to the glory of God. But now, believer, isn't it accurate you can say, through the eyes of faith, you have seen God and His glory? Well, secondly, closely related to that way is that we see Christ, we see God in Christ. In the glory of God is manifested to us in the face of Jesus Christ. First John 3, 2, there is a day coming when we shall see Christ as He is. John 1, 18 tells us that no one has seen God except God who is at the Father's side, and He has made Him known. And Jesus perhaps says most plainly in John 14. He tells his disciples that he's going away to prepare a place for them and that they will soon follow. And Thomas, in verse 5, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus replies, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The implication of all of these texts together is this. When John says in Revelation 22 that we are going to see God, we know he doesn't mean that we will see God in his essence with our physical eyes because God is invisible. Nor will we see him with unmediated directness. But what we can say, and while exactly how this plays out remains some mystery to the finite human mind, at least to mine. Rest assured, my friends, when you see him, it will all be worth the wait. There is a day coming when all that is wrong in the world, sickness, sorrow, pain, loneliness, broken relationships, Dead children, flat tires, bee stings, car wrecks, income tax, sexual assault, greed, envy, anger, malice, slander, obscene talk, gluttony, drunkenness, addictions of all kinds, tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, landslides, earthquakes, forest fires, nakedness, danger, evil tyrants, merciless persecutions, and even death itself, there is a day coming when all of these things will be swallowed up and destroyed forever. There is a day coming when we will all stand together before our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He will welcome us into His kingdom. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will look Him in the face. And not only will you see him, but his name will be written on your forehead. I believe this is, of course, a figurative way of speaking of God's presence forever with his people, protecting them. 
We will live forever under the conscious smile of God. As the song goes, I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold. This is our great hope. This is the message of the cross, that though we have wrecked and ruined this world and ourselves, and we have brought the curse of God upon ourselves, he has made a provision that we might be reconciled to him. The spotless Lamb of God slain for sinners. I wonder, can you see him? Gaze into this book. Look for him. You shall not search long before you see him shining brighter than the sun. The message of salvation is not simply that you may escape hell, but that you may have fellowship with the triune God as God, as your God. Lastly, the new creation is also a reign of righteousness. Verse 5 very briefly says that we shall have no need for sun or moon, for God and the Lamb and the light shall be the light. What splendor. Forever the people of God shall reign with Him forever. There will be a place where darkness exists no longer. All shall be bright and all shall be well. No more hiding, no more sneaking around. All shall come to light and be revealed. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb shall serve Him as priests and they shall reign with Him. You see these priests here in Revelation 22 who serve God day and night are also kings and queens who reign with Him. The Christian hope is not it's those who don't sin who get to be with God. It is those who have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. Those are the ones who will have the honor of reigning with Christ forever. And so I wonder Has Jesus made you clean? His blood, Wesley saying, can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Can you sing those words for yourself? Are you clean? Have you trusted yourself wholly to Christ that he might save you? The gates of the eternal city remain forever closed to any who have not been washed clean by the blood of Christ. But Revelation 22, verse 14 tells us that blessed are those who washed their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by its gates. So we've seen then that the new creation is a return to the garden, restored and surpassed. It is a removal of the curse and we will have the right to see God face to face in Jesus Christ and we will reign with him forever in righteousness. What then is the application? One thing, briefly, and here we return to Christian and Hopeful as they enter the celestial city. We left them trotting up the hill to the gates of gold, and here is their reception that we read from the pen of John Bunyan. 
Now while they were thus drawing toward the gate, behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them, to whom it was said by the other two shining ones, These are the men who have loved our Lord when they were in the world. And they have left all for His holy name, and He has sent us to fetch them. And we have brought them thus far on their desired journey, that they may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy." A little later, when Christian and Hopeful enter the city gates, we see them transfigured, and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. And Christian and Hopeful, with all the inhabitants of the city, sang together with a loud voice, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And so this word of application is this. Continue on in faithfulness to the Lord and to his people, even when it's hard. The Lord of the celestial city calls you to continue on. For those of you whose hearts are broken, take heart. Jesus will wipe away your tears. For those of you who feel lost and alone, take heart. The dwelling place of God is with man. For those of you who are broken and hurting, take heart. Jesus will heal all your infirmities. For those of you who are thirsty, take heart. He invites you now, come and drink. Come to the water of life and drink without price. For those of you who are polluted and ruined, take heart. Jesus removes all your guilty stains. And for those of you, for those of us whose senses are failing, who know daily we take step after step toward the end of our lives, take heart. Jesus will be in your sight soon enough. And he indeed is heaven itself. Let me pray. Lord, we triumph now as we shall do in the fulfillment of all your promises. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of our lives will be dealt with The sins of our youth, secret sins, sins of abusing you, disobeying your word, sins of violating our consciences, all will be judged. And for those who are in Christ, after judgment, peace and rest and life and service, employment and enjoyment, all for your people. God, I ask that you would take your word, plant it deep within our hearts, Cause us to know and to love your Son with ever-increasing affection and devotion forever and ever. Oh God, keep us in the faith, ever looking to behold our glorious Savior face to face at his coming. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.